0: Hi, my name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. Saul Williams is a legend who refuses to rest on his laurels. A pioneer of the hip-hop meets spoken word movement of the 90s, he created a lane that drove poetry from the musty halls of academe into the modern era. He's an actor and recording artist who has worked with Rick Rubin and Trent Reznor and has also recorded with Nas, the Fugees, Erykah Badu, KRS-One, Zach De La Roca, De La Soul, as well as with poets Allen Ginsberg and Sonia Sanchez. Perhaps his most ambitious project to date is Neptune Frost, a sci-fi Afro-futurist musical Movie written, composed, and directed or co-directed by Williams. I wanted to center my writing around the social and global issues, flooding my actual and virtual timelines and their countless intersections through a story, character, and project that would allow me to focus all of my observations, insights, rants, and talents under one heading he has written. The Martyr Loser King Project, which has three albums, a graphic novel, and the film Neptune Frost, out this summer, is basically the culmination of all that work. So welcome, Saul Williams.
1: Hey, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: Glad to have you. So let's start talking about the movie, 10 Years in the Making, roughly. You can correct me on that if I'm wrong. The culmination of your insights, rants, and talents, as you so describe them. So I'll start with the description, and I'll let you take it from there, okay? Okay. The film takes place in the hilltops of Burundi, where a group of escaped Coltan miners form an anti-colonialist computer hacker collective so take it from there so
1: well yeah it's the story of colton miners and an intersex runaway and essentially how their worlds collide combine and the surprise that that happens when two people from disparate regions and experiences meet in a dream and then in real life it's an interesting story it's a love story essentially And it came to life over the past couple of years. I mean, it's what I've been focused on definitely for the last seven, eight years, working with my collaborator, Anisi Uziman, who co directed and also did the visuals for the film, the director of photography as well. We shot it in Rwanda. Of course, we were unable to actually shoot in Burundi because of the fact that there was political unrest there in 2015. We arrived in 2016 in Kigali, Rwanda, in order to shoot a sizzle reel. But to our surprise, there were a number of Burundian activists, students, artists that were all in Kigali as refugees. And so our cast kind of reflects the original dream. And at the same time, it's shot in Rwanda, which shares a similar sort of landscape as Burundi. But it it introduces new talent in terms of sounds, it really reflects the dream that I've had since my youth of being able to write a musical that corresponds with modern music and modern times and modern approaches to making a musical, as opposed to, I mean, I, I'm a New Yorker, I grew up in New York. I up attending broadway plays every month um as a kid through you know my young adulthood and what have you i saw a lot of things on broadway and off broadway and had my mind blown though when i saw sarafina on broadway when i was like 13 or 14 which was a south african musical where the entire cast had been exiled from south africa for their participation in this musical for telling the truth on stage and the music also corresponded with the movement music that was a part of the apartheid, you know, movement in South Africa. And, uh, And so this sense of the urgency of of music and its relationship to social movements. This is, of course, in New York in the 80s and 90s during the times of Public Enemy and all this other stuff. And I've always had this question of when is the music in a musical going to reflect the hardcore stuff that I listen to in nightclubs and all this type of stuff? And and so Neptune Frost is that youthful dream come full circle and, and manifested, but it also reflects a palette of musical exploration and experiences and a collaboration not only with a a host of musical friends and collaborators that that I've acquired as as just a working musician, but also with many members of our cast and crew. And so a large number of our cast are in their own rights musicians and who work as such and are known as such in Rwanda, in Burundi, on the continent and what have you. And so it's a huge collaborative effort. And yeah, it's beautiful.
0: What nice a surprise for you to find those people there and be able to incorporate them into the film. You mentioned the word dream several times. And in fact, to me, that's kind of what the movie comes across as, as a kind of dream, has kind of all these surreal elements, transformations of actual dream sequences as well. Was this kind of a fever dream of yours, or was it something more plotted and thought out?
1: Well, I mean, we spent seven years writing the script so it might be a it's plotted and thought out although it might be born out of a fever dream and and we definitely wanted images that reflected that sense of the otherworldliness of this experience it's a science fiction film it's a film that explores An alternative world that we call Digitaria. We built a village made of recycled computer parts um, in order to make this film. We collected over two tons of e-waste from Rwanda and neighboring countries, the Congo, Uganda, in order to build this village. In fact, a great bit of the inspiration in telling this story had to come with when Anisia and I discovered the existence of e-waste camps, which are the camps where our tech goes to die, which is to say that there are village-sized camps that are, you know, where you see piles of motherboards, piles of keyboards, piles of towers and what have you, where scavenged from them are are the copper, the titanium, all the things that can be recycled or upcycled from that e-waste. And they always exist pretty close to the place where the coltan, the cobalt, the tantalite, the things that our technology is dependent on, those resources, which are also majority, majority mined on the continent, those e-waste camps are usually very closely tied to those mines in terms of location. And so we were witnessing a movement on the continent already in terms of the upcycling and the recycling of waste into art, whether it's visual art or zero waste fashion. You know, there were people, scientists who were making like 3D printing machines out of e-waste. There were people who were making like robotic arms and stuff for amputees out of e-waste. We were witnessing a, a bunch of sort of inspiring stories and wanted to make something that also reflected those types of stories coupled with the other things that we were questioning and and circling around in terms of ideas like the anti-gay laws that American evangelists were paying to have passed in countries like Tanzania, Uganda, Kenya. The film kind of reflects a sort of layered narrative that responds to our heavily-browsed timeline in terms of all these things that were occurring on the continent that have occurred for ages, and at the same time, the sort of liberating aspect of telling a story that is otherworldly, that is not invested in some sort of miserableistic uh, portrayal of the continent, but that is looking at uh, a story that that reflects the times in a way that is not normally uh, shared.
0: Right. And there's a whole like political dimension to this as well with regard to the Coltan, for example. We're using that term, but I had to look it up when I was watching your film to know that that's an essential piece of what is it for batteries that are used in all of our technology. And I find it kind of also interesting from your perspective to set a sci-fi movie, typically kind of futuristic in a locale. That's probably the least technological on the planet, right?
1: Well, that's the thing. Is or are uh, they?
0: Or maybe well, they aren't. Maybe well, the, I'm but just, that's, uh, that,
1: well. That's the thing is that the the portrayal of many of these regions on the continent is has that sense of like, ah, oh, this is something that is not someplace that is not technologically progressed. Well, one, we the look, not even the look, the. the our film was born out of the sensibility that we are the technology, that if the resources, you know, Colton, you know, circulates power through. Uh, it distributes power through small circuitry boards. So it's used in our laptops, in our smartphones, in drones, gaming devices, what have you. But it's not just Colton. There's a long history of modern technology being based on very analog exploitation or cheap or free labor, right? You know, our our financial systems, our technological systems are based on resources that have perpetually for centuries been mined from the same places. I mean, 85% of the of the Uranium that's in the hydrogen bomb that was dropped on Japan in the 40s came from Nigeria. You know, the free labor that made America rich, right? Also came from that same continent. The gold, the diamonds. People wake up and say, I, I can't do anything without my coffee. Your coffee comes from <laughs> your your chocolate comes from the rubber on the tires in your car. Where's a firestone company based? Like where you know, like all of these things that we take for granted in the West are very heavily based on the mining of resources from locations that we believe are behind in technology. And I'm saying the people. People are the technology that if, in fact, I mean, that's what we explore in our film, that if, in fact, you know, you dig into this earth where we've buried our ancestors, where we've walked for centuries, and you find the resources that somehow are is full of all this power that you can use to make batteries, to charge batteries, to, to, to do all this stuff. Is it the power of our ancestors in those minerals? Is it us? Are we somehow charged from sleeping? on this ground that these minerals are sourced from in the same way that a smartphone can be charged if put on a smart table? Is this a smart ground that charges its inhabitants? Neptune Frost is about those miners waking up and realizing that they are indeed the power, that they power the mechanisms of capitalism and what happens if they stop, what happens when they wake up to it.
0: And there's a lot of creativity there that you were referencing earlier with the hacking of whatever the garbage here and being able to turn that into some functioning product is also a big part of the story of the people who haven't been given the chance to actually go out there and create to their fullest to participate in the world at a, a, well, levels. we
1: also have to be really clear that the indigenous community in the Americas would tell you this, and it's the same thing is true on the continent, that the whole ecological and climate movement was born out of indigenous systems that were already in place. We were already living in zero waste villages and, and, and societies. We had learned the importance of not wasting any aspect of, of whatever we killed or grew or chopped down or what have you, and knew that it all had to be recycled and respected and what have you. And so the unlearning of that and the relearning of that, it's just important to to be really clear about the fact that the thing that has fallen behind in the times is not in these places that you're looking at. It's here. It's in the Americas. It's in Europe where they have refused, you know, where they don't even want history taught, where they don't want their kids to know what they did to arrive at the place where they've arrived at. But when we're where we are, where we shot the film and what have you, everybody knows, Everybody knows the truth. Everybody, I mean, like, let me tell you, one of the things that that inspired the birth of of Neptune Frost is when co-director Anisia and I were were working as actors in a film in Senegal. And uh, we were in Dakar, Senegal. And this is in 2010. And we're shooting a film there that's directed by a director, a Senegalese director named Alan Gomis. The name of the film is Ojibri. And on the ground, there in the car, we're watching kids who, this is 2010, so they have like Beats headphones on and smartphones. But they're coming home from school, and you see them sitting on their front steps of their houses, like with their smartphone on the ground, with the headphone connected to the smartphone. But in their hands, they're building a drum. Why? Because the drum is a part of the local dance competition that's going on that evening or the next evening or the next month or the next week or what have you. And our observation was like, holy crap, look, think about it. The drum was and is also a a form and means of wireless communication, right? The drum was used to send out messages and messaging. This is why drums were banned in place in colonial eras, because they eventually learned that we were communicating through drums, that it was not just dance and march, that there's ways of saying, you know, like, I'll be there at seven, at sunup, we'll be there. You know, there, there's communication through drums. And, of course, Rhonda Burundi are deeply steeped in that history, just like in West Africa and what have you. And so to think of the drum, and, of course, those drum patterns are also means of coding. And so we were making parallels between the coding that goes into our smartphones and laptops, you know, into software and what have you, and the coding that goes into drums, the communication from the drums and the communication through the machines. We were making connections between that. And like I said, this was inspired by watching kids in Senegal in 2010 who had Beats headphones and iPhones and and while they were building drums and saying, look at the old world, new world communicating. Look at these systems, you know, con- connected. It's not as if when the smartphone and the beat showed up, suddenly people were like, "Oh, it's time to throw away the drum." They could just use the smartphone to record the drum. Or what happened, you know what I'm saying like it's it's so that dialogue between ancient and modern systems is what took interest in us. But there are some people who are so rudimentary in their thinking that stop at phase one. They're like, oh, wait, kids in CineDoll have beef headphones and smartphones. They can't even get past that because they're stuck on some projected idea of the continent versus the reality. And so our projected idea is Neptune Frost. Our projected reality is Neptune Frost. This is us projecting the images of ourselves the way we want to be seen and 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 also celebrating a lot of the the artists in the film the art that the the recycling art movements that exist on the continent and that existed before we made the film and still exist you know so it's like people talk about solar panels and all this stuff but people have found ways of providing energy electricity and what have you that are extremely innovative and not solely sourced from the West.
0: And the music part I love, I think that's part, and the movement and just the shooting, you know, the vibe of the film has really captured me. And you wrote the music, and I know you've worked with a bunch of amazing people. that I mentioned earlier, Nas, the Fugees, Rick Rubin, et cetera. So what informed your music when you decided to start composing something for this project? Were you listening to anything else, or were you thinking about a reading, or you know, what was your inspirations?
1: Well, there's a lot of listening and reading that went into this project. And of course, working on any project is also an excuse to, to do a deep dive into sonic references and historical references what have you one of my favorite ones um, for this project was what i had discovered about the um the royal burundian drums um, and how uh burundian drumming had inspired um post-punk um, in fact, it's, it's, it's uh, Adam Ant and Johnny Rotten who will talk about um, this album that Johnny Rotten had gotten and played for Adam Ant um, called Les Tamburs de Burundi, um, which is what the album that was kind of circulating in England in the 70s that inspired the the, the post-punk movement, uh, the rhythms, the rhythms of post-punk coming from Burundi. Um those drums, which for them uh, the ngoma drums were were um, were used uh, in many ways, but also in 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 combat in wars. Um, to to give the impression of there being thousands of soldiers and, and and all of this stuff like there's all this stuff that was ways in which the drum was used and 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 in a multi you know multifaceted number of ways of what it symbolizes um, in Rwandan and Burundian cultures. But um, for me, musically, music was the first place I turned to in in conceptualizing this story. And so we were having these discussions about whatever might be the discussion of the day, but either way, as we were beginning to conceptualize Digitaria and where our film takes place, the first thing I wanted to create was a soundscape, to have a sense of what this world sounds like. And so a lot of the stories, a lot of the characters were were in many ways pulled from the music, meaning that I wrote the music first, meaning that the music was there before the script, meaning that I needed to have, and in order for me to write lyrics to the music, the rhythm has to be in a certain place. All of these things have to be in a certain place. So there was all this musical sort of research and, and exploration that was going on as we were conceptualizing the story in order for it to even be born. So the music came first, but the music continued, the creative process of the music. We were there uh, in Rwanda in 2016 shooting The Sizzle Reel when we first began casting the film and what have you, brought all the equipment to be able to record then. That was my first trip to Rwanda at that time, um, and we ended up meeting the majority of our cast on that trip and many members of our crew on that trip And we incorporated some of the stories of those Burundian refugees that we met at that time um, and how they crossed the border and why they had decided to come to Rwanda and how they had arrived there and what have you into the music and into the sound. And then many of them are musicians in their own right, many of our cast members. And of course, we ended up working with a Burundian drum collective a traditional Burundian drum collective called the Himbaza Club, who became our ensemble, who play the minors of the film. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, and so their music became a part of the film as well. So it was just a sort of snowball collaborative effect, how it all came together.
0: But you were heavily influenced by hip-hop. When you combined that with the poetry, hip-hop had a revolutionary aspect to it in those days as well. Do you feel that that's no longer adequate to tell the story in rap music that it you need something that's a little bit opens to other cultures to try to break through all the clutter that's out there?
1: Well, one I would say that, you know, hip hop exists in many cultures. Like our our main one of our main protagonists, Kaya Free, who plays Montaluza, is a very well-known Burundian rapper. Many of our, many of the artists in our films are rappers that do not rap in English and produce hip-hop and have been doing so for ages, but out of their own cultures. You know, um, so the thing that I take from hip-hop is mixed media, you know, which is something that, you know, and in the way that it connects to let's say jazz. You know, like if you listen to a, a Charlie Parker or Thelonious Monk solo, you would hear them and you hear that with Ella Fitzgerald and, and singers as well, how they reference other songs and other standards in a, it, just in a solo. Like the song may be one thing, but they'll do a solo and for, for four bars, they're going to reference four bars of another recognizable song and then bring it back to where they were. Right? Sampling. That's, that's what happens, you know, in jazz. When we get to hip hop, we actually took those songs and put them in there for four bars, what have you, mixed media. Um, so there's nothing played out about that. Um, mixed media is still the future. Um, There's nothing played out about hip-hop. Hip-hop is exactly where we are in terms of production and using all of the forms that exist and bringing them together. And my exploration of the different forms that we could bring together because... Let's say in the 80s and 90s, when people started sampling, let's say they were particularly sampling uh, hip hop and jazz and maybe a, a few rock records. And when I was started working on, on my second album, for example, I decided oh, I'm going to sample punk records. I'm going to sample punk and noise albums. So we're still sampling, but we're choosing what we sample differently same thing with with this album i mean like th- there are samples here that that is just a matter of saying oh i'm gonna go into some traditional music and see what i can take from there and blah, blah 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 so it's still hip-hop based um and then the other aspect of hip-hop is the attitude right which is shared with like something like punk rock or aspects of rock and roll that attitude is all there so, the incorporation of all of these different sounds and elements and rhythms, because the film for me, musically, uh, where I was individually as an artist, was I was at a point where I really wanted to go deeper into my exploration of polyrhythms, you know, because I also see polyrhythms in its relationship to technology and coding um, in that 0101 and, and finding those beats between the beats and seeing that as like the technology within music. I think that polyrhythmic music really has always explored sort of like the the innate technological relationship that we have to music, in the same way that the Dogon of Mali, who who say that they come from the planet Sirius B, whose numerological system is 00101. Zero, zero zero one, who I mean, we have a, a reference to them in the film because the the, the avatar that visits our main character. Uh, at the beginning of the film, in that dream, his name is Patolo. Patolo comes from Dogon. It means serious, serious B, and that. So we're trying to make connections between the the ancient and the future. The rigid, yeah, you know. I was just going to
0: say, is that how you would define Afrofuturism? Is it's a word that people are using quite a bit these days. And it's found a lot of resonance. Yeah, Octavius Butler's books are being reissued.
1: Yeah. Is that a word resonate with you? Well, I I mean, I don't mind it. I mean, you mentioned those books being reissued. But for me, I, I, I was reading Octavia Butler as a teenager. You know, and so this is something in terms of science fiction, and that exploration has has been important to me and interesting to me from from my youth. And I always had big questions about um, science fiction in the way that it's projected. Like I I saw it as projection. I you know, like even when I looked at like stuff like Star Wars, I couldn't I couldn't be too deeply into it simply because I was like, this feels like projection. It's your biggest fear that you're going to be um, uh, colonized by aliens. I know some people that were colonized by aliens, and Mm -hmm. they didn't have to go to a different planet in order to experience that. And so now when you envision aliens, all you can think of is that they're going to enslave and colonize you. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, this sense of if this is higher intelligence, then why are there weapons? Why is there this level of violence if it's supposed to reflect higher intelligence? Why is higher intelligence so dependent on violence when we see it as such an avid expression of the basest form of intelligence, right? So I've always questioned like, these approaches and the cinema and these forms of stories. So, in terms of Afrofuturism, I've heard some people describe it as like a, a projection of African ideas and and what have you, imagining um, ourselves beyond the the colonized or the or state not just beyond, but imagine like if those things never happen, I don't even think you have to go that far, you know, because, you know, when I talk about the Dogon, if I talk about many ancient indigenous uh, stories, if we were to write down the ancient indigenous stories of the Maya, the ancient indigenous stories of, 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 of those in Rwanda and those in Burundi of those in Congo, of, of those in Senegal, they would read like science fiction stories,
0: like
1: even more so because yeah. there's a male because there's a male rigidity in the bible
0: uh-huh.
1: there's a male there's a genocidal male rigidity that tells people to kill their firstborn and and all of this stuff that's in the bible but you will find stuff of like i said the dogon have said for centuries that they came from the planet sirius in fact the first 50 years of nasa was then confirming what the Dogon saw with their naked eyes. Firstly, that the brightest star in the sky has another star behind it, Sirius B, which is where they said they were from, which is what the scientists in the West were saying, well, that doesn't exist, until they had a good enough telescope to see it and said, well, how did you see it? And of course, then they learned that there was a third star there called Sirius C, and the other name of that Sirius C is Digitaria, And Digitaria is where our story takes place in Neptune Frost. The Dogon have already, you know, talked about those things. There's so many different tribes, groups, cultures that have a sort of science fiction and or scientific relationship to to nature, to, to earth. I mean, even when we talk about plant medicine, if we were to talk about the pharmaceutical industry's relationship to shamanic culture and how the shamans understood which plants were poisonous and not which plants could heal what it's not the so-called scientists that figured it out the scientists figured out how to talk to those shamans and 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 say okay this flower essence does that okay how did you know that and they're not ready for the answer because the answer is science fiction (laughs) except it's not necessarily fiction
0: right and it's not necessarily science (laughs) either right
1: But it is science, you know, that's the thing, you know, so, so, so I think, uh, you know, it's a layered question, um, but we don't have any problem with, with being seen as something as, as idealistic example or contemporary example of what Afrofuturism is, but maybe there's some redundancy there because, you know, anything that we've, that has been associated with technology on this planet has always and sometimes very violently been rooted in Africa. You do not have cars. You do not have any of the stuff, the phones. You do not have any of the stuff that we associate with technology without that continent. You do not have the free labor to 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 that you know that keeps the colonial system going and and and, and until you get to the industrial age where, where the machines replace right, the people. But when you ask any engineer to des- to, to describe a, a machine to you, they speak in colonial terms. They go, well, that's the master, that's the slave. That's someone right now describing your car engine or the, or the, or the engine of a camera or of a recording device. That's the master, that's the slave. They use the plant- plantation symbology because that's where they learned how it worked in order to explain how these contemporary Instruments work, you'll see it. If you take the, 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 the keyboard off of your laptop right now, you'll see sometimes on the motherboard there, it'll say master, slave. Right now. Right now. You know, so it's um, it's all connected. And our film, in a very creative way, seeks to explore those connections and to celebrate our connection and to kind of make a statement for the workers of the world, because our, our film does center minors, but it also does explore fluidity in gender, in language, and in the concept of power.
0: Well, thank you very much for making Neptune Frost. It's a beautiful film. Uh, the music, as I mentioned, the visuals, the story, it's going to make people think. It's made me think. And uh, thank you for taking well, the thank time. You. We hope
1: it makes you dance, too. <laughs> <laughs> okay,
0: <laughs> Yeah, that can do that too, I'm sure. Yep. All right, my friend. Thank you so much.
1: All right, thank you. All right, bye-bye.
0: You've been listening to Light Culture. You can find us at shopburb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb. You can follow them at ShopBurb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening.